Hey, all you makers out there, welcome to another episode of The Goods, the only podcast where you'll discover how people are designing everything from products and services, everyday objects, our environment, and tomorrow's technology. Each episode, you'll meet someone new who's a part of something cool, and you'll also get new insights that you can use to bring your ideas to life. This week, that person is Dr. Oli Kutsaftis, a speculative designer and RMIT University School of Design Industry Fellow and Lecturer. In this conversation, you'll hear how speculative design works and why it matters, why the question what if is so important to our future, what's missing from architecture today, why biodesigners grow materials instead of mining them, the reasons bacteria and algae and moss are so exciting, and the potential impact of CRISPR technology. If this episode inspires you, please pass it on. If donating's your jam, you can support the show by leaving a tip at thgds.com forward slash support. All tips will be reinvested back into making the goods better. But now that's said and done, let's get into it. Thank you for listening. Hey, Ollie, welcome to the goods. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, no worries. So... Typically, designers are seen as problem solvers or creatives, but speculative design zooms out a bit uh, beyond the present and asks us what futures might look like. Can you expand on this and give us an understanding of what this practice is really about? Yeah, sure. Um, My pleasure. Well, um, I guess, like, first of all, um, I'm super happy that the practice is being talked about more often at the moment. Um, In a nutshell, and, and put it very simply, you could define it as the, the practice that tries to imagine what futures or alternate realities could look like. But mm. um, it's much more than that, actually. So if we look at the world around us, um, everything has been designed. So the chair we're sitting on, the spaces we're living in, the tech devices we're using to listen to this podcast, and uh, I'd say even the, the service you're providing at the moment to your audience, Mike. Um, But what's common between all of these things is that they are um, tangible responses to the world we're currently living in. So you could say that um, these designs provide an answer to a need or a behavior. But design does not exist just to provide these answers. So in speculative design, the object of the design is also there as a conversation starter. It it can provide um, a critique of of the world we live in. Um, but it can also show us what the world could be. So all of this is uh, maybe a bit theoretical. I don't know what you think, but um, happy to give you a more tangible re- response if you want. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm curious then, like, uh, given what you've just kind of described, what would be the main goal of speculative design? Um, I'm going to answer that by giving you an example, right? So awesome. um, let's pretend it's 2050. What does the world look like? It's, it's a pretty hard question to answer, isn't it? So 2050 is in like 30 years time and, uh, and most likely the world is going to be uh, very, very different from what it is now. So if you remember even like 2010, uh, uh, tw- uh, 10 years ago, we we're just getting started with uh, smartphones and social media and, and even like artificial intelligence, for example, was something that um, you mainly heard of in pop culture and science fiction. Um, but all of this is accelerating really fast, right? So there's new discoveries and decisions made every day that are influencing how we, uh, we develop as a society. So you can imagine that there's not just one possible future ahead of us, but that there's many. Mm-hmm. So what does, this, what does this future look like? Are, are we going to be able to, uh, 
to control the climate, for example, and, and avoid a societal collapse? Uh, are we going to find a vaccine against COVID-19? Or, or on the other hand, is there going to be another disease that's going to be even worse? We don't mm. know. Um, are we all going to eat insects? And if yes, what does an insect serving restaurant look like, for example? Like, <laughs> do you know, we, we don't know anything, but we can imagine it and, and we can design around this. So here you can see that more than designing for what could be, uh, speculative design is also there to, to make us understand um, what these possible futures are made of and what they mean for us. And, and not only for us, actually, but also for the, all the other living species around us. Mm. And um, why is the question, what if, so important to speculative design? Ah, uh, that's a good question. It's actually one of my favorite questions as a speculative designer. So um, once again, I'm just going to give you an example to answer that. So if I ask you, uh, hey, Mike, uh, where do you want to go on holiday next? So you can see straight away that um, I'm framing this question towards uh, geographical places that you already know about. But also, more importantly, uh, you're going to answer based all, on all the preconceived ideas that you have about these places, right? Mm. Um, so it's going to influence your decisions. But if I ask you, um, hey, Mike, what if we were to design the best holiday for you? What does it look like? Ooh. So you can see straight away that uh, it's a more open-ended question and um, there's endless possibilities to your answer. Mm. So asking what if question is basically a, a great way to, to get creative. Mm. So it opens up other possibilities, whereas other questions might perhaps like turn you down a very narrow path in terms of an outcome. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And because the future is uncertain, we don't want to be guided towards just one answer. Mm. Um, I'm really curious then, why is it crucial that we talk about the impact of like technology on our everyday lives in the context of like this spe greater speculation? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, so technology is all around us. We can't avoid it. Uh, it's becoming uh, more and more present in our everyday life. Like we're all aware of that. Uh, as I said earlier, like 10 years ago, we couldn't, we could definitely live without a smartphone. Now it's unlikely that most people will give up their smartphone just for even a day or two, right? A couple so, of hours even. A couple <laughs> hours even maybe. <laughs> so like then when you start thinking about futures and the role of technologies in our daily life, then like speculative design becomes very interesting because it raises like all these ethical, ethical questions about um, uh, the need that we have to connect through technology and, and, and the role of technology, uh, how it assists us to live all our lives. Um, mm. So um, yeah, there's a massive connection between speculative design and, and, uh, and questioning the role of technology. Uh, it's used a lot in that regards. Mm. There's something uh, I've been um, looking into as part of this podcast research, and it's the idea of uh, like preferred outcomes or preferred alternatives of the future. And I'm really curious if you can kind of describe why we should be considering our preferred alternatives for the future. Yeah. Um, again, like s such a, a valid question, because when you think about it, the world we live in today, 
uh, is basically the product of the dreams of the powerfuls of the past. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's a dance. <laughs> so it is important to not uh, let other people decide what these futures are. And uh, I don't shy away from a political comment. So like if you look around us at the moment, um, there's a lot of a, a return to populist politics, right? Mm. And if we let this person decide what the future is, well, are we going to be happy with this? So the, the speculative design mm. is there to, to define like a, a preferred future uh, or alternative futures for, for all. And, and what's important to remember is like a, a, my preferred future might be different than yours or, or, or somebody else. And at the moment, we live in a world where um, uh, uh, a whitewash version of the future is being designed mm. for us. And like, there's obviously all the minorities' voices that are not being taken into account. And, 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 and we need to, to really uh, li listen outside of uh, the mainstream, mainstream voices in order to, to design a future which is preferential for all. For like for all people, yeah. yeah. How do we start to open that discussion so that there are those voices accounted for? Is there some kind of format or forum or way that these conversations occur to um, start to draw these conversations to the forefront of our awareness? So these conversations happen every day without any of us paying attention, right? So um, every time a human story is told, or every time somebody tweets or publishes a photo on social media about their identities or the kind of future they want, um, this content becomes part of the collective consciousness. And when the same message is repeated many times over, it becomes a movement, um, an ideology, a vision. But obviously, there's a there's a difference between telling stories or or being a visionary person, and and the practice of speculative design, right? So there, there's a there's a logic to the madness. Um, speculative design is a is a rigorous and highly creative process of uh, of design research and ideation, whose outcome is a set of um, of designed artifacts. So the voices heard, going back to the research, the voices heard by speculative designers during the design research phase, um, and obviously there's a legitimacy as to what topics should be addressed by designers. So, so the makeup of the design teams are very important as to, as to what they can or cannot talk about. So these voices and, and other elements of research are, are used to create various scenarios, each representing a different future from... Um, probable futures to possible futures or, or even preposterous futures. Um, and, and through these scenarios, which can be utopic or dystopic and anything in between, we can start thinking about what these futures mean and, and what consequences they would generate if they were to be implemented. So in speculative design, the, these scenarios are often called um, uh, design fictions. And if you think of it, a lot of the movies we're actually very familiar with are, are design fictions. So here I'm thinking of, um, of Black Panther, which is a, a movie that I, I've recently rewatched. And uh, it's a movie that is proposing a, a vision for an African superpower. And um, the amount of details that went in the design of this film from architecture to fashion, to the objects within the film and, uh, and even the culture for that matter. It's just fascinating to me. Like it, it's way more than a movie. Like when you look at it, it's, a, it's actually a conversation starter. It's a conversation starter on, on African culture um, and the role of Africa in today's society. 
So um, long answer, sorry for that. Um, just to wrap it up, these designs, um, um, design fictions or, or other forms of, of designs, uh, other artifacts, they, they can then be presented through all sorts of formats and channels, from uh, uh, museum exhibitions to conferences. There's actually a very good one in the US called um, Primer, which is also in Europe, and I highly recommend it. I went to the New York City one last year, and I really enjoyed it. Um, but you could also make books and, and, and websites and, and podcasts and, and films, obviously, as we just talked about. Hmm. Um, that makes me think about um, film and films like Blade Runners and Total Recalls and like all these like sci-fi films that have existed in the past. Yeah. Uh, and they tend to like present a possibility for what the future looks like. And thinking about um, Blade Runner, for an example, um, it created a vision for the future that did not exist before it came out. And then suddenly, like a lot of sci-fi films replicated that uh, aesthetic, that feeling, that overall world. Um, and it just made me present to how we can restrict our thinking based on what we've seen before like suddenly Blade Runner became the new normal for what the future could look mm. like and um, thinking about other shows like um, The Handmaid's Tale for example which is a speculative fiction piece by Margaret Atwood that really presents uh, an alternate kind of reality or an alternate future. Uh, I'm not really sure if I'm going anywhere with a question here, but it just <laughs> started to open my mind to how these different possibilities could look or play out or be. Um, and the role of fiction and fantasy and science fiction in cinema and how that plays out for us. Yeah, that's, that's such a like chicken and egg question. Like, um, are we shaping our visions of the future based on the the films and the we see and the book we read, mm. or are we better off uh, shaping a different version of the future through speculative design? I think like it's really nice to have all these films and books out there because um, uh, they kind of project they, they kind of project different scenarios of the of the future of the world to to uh, to everybody and which i think is fantastic uh, but i think we shouldn't be uh, framed by them as well because they 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 sometimes like uh, repeat the same kinds of narrative which are mm -hmm. highly dystopian and 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 maybe we we don't want to go there right so yeah. <laughs> so like uh, the role of speculative design is also like to branch out from like the the mainstream vision of what the future is and propose different alternatives to that Mm, because those um, visions that have come before might not be really what we want as, exactly. a, as yeah. a human species uh, for the future, right? Yeah. Um, what's one way that people might be able to apply speculative design in their everyday life? Is there an example that, is there a way that that could happen? I think the, a better question might be like, do they want to? Uh, <laughs> because you can imagine like, um, yeah, okay. it's all like a feature focus um, practice, right? And uh, I think there's a, a need for us to live in the now and to enjoy the present moment. So I wouldn't encourage to, uh, to use speculative design like every day in your everyday life. But in a way, it's also like a potentially like a, a good way to to reflect on, on like uh, what what life we want and mm. uh, and and make decisions. Uh, is it better to uh, to move to Canada and and marry Jack, or is it better to to stay here and study geography, for example? Two mm. different scenarios that needs to be investigated for for a person if. if this is the case they're, they're facing. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's yeah. a really interesting point then. Um, maybe people 
are applying speculative design to their everyday life without even realizing it when they talk about their futures, their dreams, you know, their their wants, needs and desires that they don't quite have. Like, you know, just talking through that example, like I've previously lived in Canada um, and I fantasized about what life might look like if I did uh, move to Canada. And then... Uh, at that moment in my life, I decided to make it happen. So it was very much like considering a possible future or speculating what on the future of what my life might be like, and then kind of trying to bring that into reality or bring that into existence once I decided that that would be the positive or preferred option. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like almost like the next step after speculation is like, how do we transition to the preferred state? Yeah. And that's a very fascinating question as well. Well, I think that's a really elegant follow-up, right? Like you have that what if defining the, the maybe the trying to figure out what the preferred state is, but then like the how would be the natural follow-up to bring it into reality. Mm, yeah. Mm. And something like- there's so actually you, another practice of design called transition design. It's like, how do you move from like the current state to future, to preferred future states? Interesting. Uh, fantastic practice as well. Um, can you describe a little bit more about that and what that looks like? Uh, it's actually coming from uh, uh, Carnegie Mellon University in the US and it's mainly focused on like, how do we get out of the climate crisis? Um, so transition design towards like a, a carbon neutral futures. And the guy who started that is actually Australian, um, uh, Cameron Tompkins Wise. Uh, so he, he developed the, the theory of, and the practice in the, in the US and now uh, returned a few years ago to, to Australia where he teaches in Sydney. Uh, I find the, the practice very fascinating as well, especially because I'm, I'm very interested in um, getting out of the climate climate crisis uh, and, and, and work out so design solution in order to do so in my, in my daily practice. Mm, I think there's a key word that I'm hearing there too, and it's transitions. Like it's, it's not like, you know, you suddenly you're in this predicament, um, this negative state, and then uh, tomorrow there's the positive state or the preferred state. Like it, it does take effort and time and discipline and practice and perseverance to get there, I imagine as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's not a linear linear path, that's for sure. Yeah, it might be a little bit like two steps forward, three steps back, one step to the side, then maybe a future <laughs> forward step. It's a little dense. <laughs> yeah. So I'm wondering if you can take me back then. Uh, you've had a really amazing career journey so far, but where did it all begin for you? Uh, uh, so uh, I'm sure like uh, some people would have picked up on my French accent already, but um, so I'm from France and uh, when I was a teenager, 17, like uh, I actually started to um, study architecture um, and um, found it fascinating. I was obsessed with it for a long, long time, but quickly realized, that, and again, like you'll see that uh, during our conversation, the climate crisis is going to come up a lot. Um, I, I, saw, I saw already that the practice was highly unsustainable and, and basically like uh, architects, in today's world, uh, I've basically two options: either you you design like uh, for the very wealthy and 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 it's beautiful, but like is it meaningful, or or you're left with like a low cost budget that are highly unsustainable. And I didn't want to go to either of these practices, so I actually decided took a, a good look at like what I wanted to do with my life and um, and speculated about the future, and uh, and decided that I wanted to learn more about uh, biology and and, and genetics and. Uh, and how could we be, how could architecture and design in general could be more sustainable as a practice by uh, working better with the natural system around us? So I left architecture, I did um, 
a master of biotech, did a PhD of, uh, of genetics, did five years of postdoc like uh, in Japan and Australia. And, but after that, I was missing design. I'm not going to lie. So mm. <laughs> around like 2009, I, I went back to design. I worked a lot in um, uh, system design, service design spaces. Um, I ended up being like a, a design lead at Fjord, which is like an international design and innovation company. And, and then also realized while I was doing this that um, I could actually open my own business. So I did. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> wow. So um, I opened my studio, which is called Future Ensemble. And as I was doing this, um, I started to teach at RMIT as well. And last year, I kind of put my, my studio on the back burner and, uh, and I'm a full-time lecturer at um, RMIT University School of Design here in Melbourne. Wow. Um, you mentioned that you were really missing design. I think you said it was like 2008, was it? Um, yeah, the end of 2009, yeah. Um, what was it that you were really missing from design that you weren't quite getting? Well, uh, <laughs> try to put like a creative person within like a scientific environment for 10 years and you will understand, right? <laughs> so like... Uh, I was always dreaming of this what if questions are, what if we were to do this? What, what could we do with this? And, uh, and uh, the scientific methodology is highly different than, than the design process. It, it's all about uh, uh, proving hypothesis and, and, and testing them all before uh, we can move on to, to, to make things. And, and, uh, and I was more in the making things and, and uh, theory and being more creative about like the, uh, the route to follow in order to, to, uh, to design something which potentially could, uh, could be very different than a, a typical scientific outcome. Mm, uh, so I, I was really missing design. Like, yeah, I really wanted to go back in it. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. It, it's what you mentioned there was really interesting too, because the scientific method and say the user experience design practice have a lot of similarities like hypothesis testing. Uh, it, it's all kind of part of the, like a greater consistent practice, I think. Like I would say the UX practice has definitely um, extracted a lot of the scientific methodologies uh, and applied them or expressed them in a very different way. Yeah, that's true. I think like there's some similarity in the in the processes. Um, I think like uh, it was mainly this like uh, this big question that I was looking for like uh, get, to get back into like, uh, yeah. What if we were to change the world? Or, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like more uh, visionary thinking, I guess. That's it, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned uh, you did a PhD, you mentioned genetics, which I we're definitely going to dig into um, later in this episode. But I'm curious if you can tell me about what you – what originally drew you into architecture? Like you mentioned that these low-cost developments and this um, – uh, creating unique one-off spaces for wealthy didn't really quite appeal to you, but what was the core of architecture that really spoke to you? Yeah, this, it's a hard, it's a hard question to answer. It's always like it's about reflection on like your own practice, right? But I would say like if you ask my parents, I've been designing like houses since I'm a, I'm a kid, and obviously at the start it was like a pretty basic drawings, but. Uh, even as a teenager, I was starting to like really get into like designing like spaces for people. And I think that was really the key. Uh, I really saw very early on the, the connection between um, people and spaces. Mm. And, and that's my drive in architecture. How do we make like a, a human-centered architecture? Mm. Uh, and if we look around us at the moment, like as, as we talked about before, it's mainly like uh, small places, low-cost and sustainable material, which I don't think is conducive to like a, a healthy development of society. 
society or is like this like luxurious uh, abundant uh, mega mansions which i think are completely out of touch with reality mm, out of reach of uh, most everyday people as well yeah definitely mm. yeah uh, you mentioned just now um, uh, like human-centered design or human-centered spaces. And this might be a really odd question, but uh, what is the problem with our bathroom doors opening into our living rooms? <laughs> yes. So I think you read that in one of my articles from my, my Medium blog, uh, which is an article I wrote just a few months ago on the speculation of, of uh, speculation on, on the future of design, basically. And um, yeah, so when we, when we look at this uh, small spaces all this like low cost um, uh, buildings that are being popping up everywhere at the moment like there's not a huge a huge consideration for like how people are going to live in them mm. and like I remember just a few years ago before uh, living in the space that I'm in now I went to visit one a few apartments in the in the city center and inner suburbs of uh, of Melbourne and I was really shocked by the the layouts of uh, all these new places where there's very few consideration for human experience in the in living spaces, and uh, and a lot of the doors from the bathroom were opening directly on the on the living rooms, and that was one of my observation. And, uh, and I'm sure you can imagine like all sorts of uh, things that can <laughs> come out of this. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like you've got guests over, and you've taken a shower, and you've walked out, and you've just come face to face with the people that are in your house. Exactly. Yeah, mm. that's not very uh, human friendly. <laughs> yeah, and riffing on that a little bit, what's what's really missing in architecture today? What's really missing? Well, I think it's like this consideration for um, natural system and the environment. Like uh, architecture practices as they stand today are highly, highly unsustainable. Uh, we clearly need to change the the way we build our houses, our our homes, and our and our cities. Um, and like, uh, do you know, like uh, at this stage, I think like we're gonna we're already consuming like half of the resources. So each year, we consume the resources that the Earth. We, <laughs> I'm gonna rephrase that. We're gonna each year we can we consume in six months what the planet can regenerate in one year. Yeah. And so if we continue at this rate, there's obviously gonna we're gonna face more and more problems in terms of uh, mm. uh, sustainability yeah, and where we source our materials. Yeah, because we can't. Um if we're outpacing regeneration, there's a point where it just doesn't work anymore. It's mathematic, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it becomes pretty obviously mathematical. Yeah. <laughs> um, and where do you speculate, given that, given what we've just spoken about, we're all actually right now this moment um, living through COVID-19, we're all in isolation. Where do you speculate architecture might be beyond 2020? I think there's like a really interesting space which is developing at the moment, which is like, uh, how do we come up with like a, a new materiality and new materials in the way we, we build our, our spaces? And um, there's actually a, a field of design which is like getting a lot of traction as well, which is called bio design. So mm. uh, uh, designing for life uh, or designing with life as well. And, uh, and I think it's showing a lot of promises in, in, in the way we're going to build our of building houses and cities uh, going forward. Mm, great. And that I think is a beautiful segue. Let's move into biodesign and talk a little bit about genetics. Uh, what motivated you to do a, do a PhD? Because like even like um, when I was, when I left architecture, like uh, there was already like fringe thinking about uh, how we're going to be able to, to design with a living in order to be more sustainable. And this is something that was like, really, I found really intriguing. I, I was still pretty young and, uh, 
uh, I thought there were potentially like a, a lot of opportunities in the future about this. And uh, I really wanted to understand what that meant. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's why I switched my practice to uh, uh, and my studies towards the field of uh, biotech and, and genetics and all of this. Hmm. And uh, would you recommend doing a PhD to most other designers or any other types of designers? I don't think it's a necessity. Um, it really depends on like... Uh, how thorough you want to be in your practice like I'm, I, I, maybe it's a bad thing but i actually like i love learning uh and, and and also when the fields of study is like highly complex such as like genetics and biology and biotech like uh, i just didn't want to be uh, scratching the surface of thing and i really wanted to uh, uh understand better to, to be a better practitioner basically mm. um so that's why i, I decided to to pursue all these uh, degrees mm. And I think the big question I've got is, and maybe other people have got the question as well, is like, what is biodesign? Uh, it, it's probably a an unfamiliar term that most people haven't heard about before. So I'm really curious about um, how you might describe it. Yeah. Oh, um, so biodesign is a, is a passion of mine, right? Uh, it's part of my practice as well, uh, such as uh, speculative design. Uh, and they go really well hand in, hand in hand together. But if you think about it, biodesign, designing with a living is not a new practice at all because um, we've been making clothes out of linen and cotton for like centuries and centuries, right? This is using a living material in order to, um, a living organism in order to make things and design things. Um, there's even some parts of uh, uh, India, for example, there's an example that comes to mind where um, uh, farmers and, 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 and the general population were weaving tree branches in order to create bridges uh, made out of the tree. So as the tree grows, the, the bridge strengthens and it's a living bridge. Wow. Uh, so that's bioarchitecture uh, by itself. So it's definitely not a new practice. But what's interesting is because um, we have all this progress in, uh, in, in genetics since the last 50, 60 years, we're getting, to, we're getting into a space now where where we can actually um, manipulate the genomes of, of these living species and, and really get creative about what they could do for us or how we can live in symbiosis with them. Mm. Um, so biodesign is evolving quite rapidly as we have a better understanding of uh, all this natural system around us. Mm. Um, I think that example you just spoke about with the bridge that only strengthens as it grows is a perfect example of, you know, working with a natural material and um, using its natural properties as a benefit um, for the design outcome. Definitely, yeah. And really the practice is getting bonkers at the moment. So you have like people like Neri Oxman at MIT University in the in the US, which is like a, a pioneer in the field, uh, doing amazing work on, for example, creating glass, which is embedded with a bacteria that produce melanin. So the, the glass can like uh, change color and filter UV. Wow. Uh, uh, in buildings so like really really like out there thinking but you would imagine like potentially in 10 to 15 years time that'll be common practice we don't know mm. there's also this um, amazing practitioner in the uk at university of newcastle called rachel armstrong which is uh, talking about uh, living architecture or how can living uh, how can we grow and decay building in the future for example on a per unit basis uh, because they are made of living things um, you, you mentioned decay is is it a, is decay a, a condition that they're thinking about in that context 
So it doesn't have to be because um, uh, obviously we can uh, extract material from the from the living and uh, and it becomes like an inert material that doesn't change too much with time. But if you live with like a, if you design with the living with living cells that like uh, grow multiply, uh, obviously at one point they will die, and potentially we can plan the obsolescence of a building. Mm. That's actually a quite a heavy concept to think about because um, planned obsolescence is something that maybe people aren't aware of, but um, it's typically factored into our technology, our garments and things like that. There is a moment or a point in which these things are designed to fail, to break. So it encourages people to purchase more and, and buy again. And it's really yep. fascinating to hear about that through the lens of an actual space that people might live inside of. Yeah, yeah, and and like with every technology, like uh, and every uh, concept and design principle, you, you can make them work for you, or you can make them work against you, right? Mm. So, um, uh, in the context of what you're talking about with technology, plan obsolescence is obviously like a, a not a good thing for consumers, um, but potentially in other aspects of design, it is a good thing to consider. Mm. In the case of technology and garments, it's probably not a good thing for the planet either, really. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, this might be a question that you've, you've already answered, but um, what does a biodesigner work with as a material? And you've mentioned just now living cells as one potential possibility, but um, how does it actually? How does this process work um, as a designer? Um, you know, in my mind, I'm picturing people inside labs, you know, conducting experiments to understand how things atomically work, so that they can design accordingly. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more about what the process um, actually looks like? Yeah, maybe I'm going to start by demystifying the fact that you don't need to be a scientist to be a biodesigner, right? So mm. it's not always about the atomic level. Like, for example, um, uh, trees uh, produce cork. Uh, you don't need to be a scientist in order to, to use cork, right? <laughs> you can put uh, it in the top of your wine bottle. <laughs> um there's many levels to it. So like um, at the moment, like scientists are, uh, sorry, by designers are, are investigating like what's around us. It basically doesn't change much from any design process. You start by doing research about like what kind of material you could use. And then instead of looking into a, a material library that we already know, and in architecture, for example, it will be like glass, concrete, uh, uh, clay, timber. Um, then we can look at like different form, different forms of materials, such as like, can we make a brick out of a fungus? And they already, some people are already working on this. Mm. Um, or can we make a, um, um, for example, there's so many things made of plastic nowadays. Can we use, can 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 we make bioplastics um, thanks to algae? For example, will be another mm. one to look into. So it, it, the design process doesn't change much. Much it's just a question of like the the materiality is coming from a, a, a different place. That's all. Mm. So instead yeah. of uh, mining the world, we grow our ma own material. That's really interesting. Um, how how do you specifically as a designer work with biological material? Because you mentioned like biodesign is a big part, a big um, passion uh, of yours. It's part of your practice. How have you worked with it in the past as a tangible example for people? Yeah. So at the moment I'm designing like a, a, a room, a, a new urban space, which I call the refrigerium. So literally, it means the place to cool off. And um, it's like, the way I think about it, it's like a place where people come in 
um, to have a bit of a respite for the changing climate. So uh, as temperatures are going to get higher and higher, and we're going to have a lot of more a lot more heat waves and potentially a lot more bushfire smokes as well, and um, and obviously air pollution is a massive thing in, in every city. Uh, I'm thinking of this as an indoor space, which is like a secluded, and uh, which is covered in plants. Mm. Um, so I work a lot with uh, with mosses at the moment and lichen, and um, and uh, the reason for this is like first of all the they're really beautiful to look at. They're very peaceful, but but also they're they're tremendously effective effective at capturing carbon and sequestering carbon. Interesting. And so in one way, it's a way to uh, improve air qualities in cities, but in 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 another way, from an experiential perspective, this space is there to to soothe people and calm people about the the effect of the the climate crisis. Mm. So it almost has. Um, dual purposes in a way where it um, it sequesters carbon out of the immediate atmosphere and converts it, but also it's peaceful and calming. And the third benefit would be that it's cooling as well. As well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting to think about like biological materials through that lens and apply it into physical spaces because suddenly you can see how almost obvious that it is to consider using these natural materials um, in hindsight. Um, like it sounds like it's absolutely an obvious thing to use a moss that grows in, I imagine, forests or something like that, um, that people have encountered throughout our human existence um, that has those natural kind of properties to work with uh, and just apply it into the designed spaces that we all habitat or we've we all inhabit i should say yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and the, the, the beauty of uh, of the natural system around us is like there are literally thousands and thousands of species that uh live around us that we do not even pay attention to so mm -hmm. fungus bacteria mosses all these lower organisms are actually fascinating to work with because they have amazing properties that we would definitely be using in order to, to be more sustainable in our daily lives. Mm. Yeah, sometimes people, I think, perhaps get a little um, amazed by complex organisms, but sometimes the simpler organisms have just as much potential and possibility for us if we just do that little bit more digging and, and um, investigation. Yeah, 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 it's like a, it's like the cute factor of like a mammal, like a dog or a giraffe, like we're all obsessed with, but uh, but not like the algae. <laughs> but the, yeah, that's the lower organism that are actually really fascinating, and we could uh, they grow really fast. Uh, um, so like the, the the biomass is increasing really fast. So like in terms of like making material, it's pretty really easy. Uh, they're easily um, um, genetically manipulable as well. So mm. we, we we could easily transform them in order to give them other properties, um, obviously within reason. Um, yeah, it's, it's just fantastic, the, the, the potential which is ahead of us. Mm. You mentioned just now like within reason, is, is there some kind of process or considerations that you should or do make uh, when considering modifying organic material to work with? Oh, well, I mean, like, I think everybody would agree on that. But yeah, there's a definitely ethical concerns around like the biodesign practice is like, first of all, like, uh, even like from a, let's say a circular economic perspective, if you can make bioplastic out of a crop, is it a good thing to do? If you can make biofuel out of a crop, is it a good thing to do? Because let's say uh, you want to produce like a uh, cheap electricity in, uh, in an area where the main, uh, 
crop source, uh, the food source is, is that crop. If you uh, take away that, that that food, then like you're creating other problems as well, right? Mm. So that's like, yeah, concerns like that are obviously uh, needs to be investigated. But also like now, if we talk about like genetic manipulations of genomes, obviously like we don't want to release GMO everywhere in the uh, in nature. So mm. all of this needs to be highly controlled and and uh, and and discussed before it is implemented. Obviously. And that's, I guess, where the importance of the question, what if, comes back to things. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's why speculation and biodesign really go really well together. Mm. Uh, Almost like complementary disciplines. Definitely. Yeah. Mm. And um, why do you think biodesign is so important to us right now? Because like... um, if you look at this UN report from like two years ago, basically mentioning we have about 12 years in order to uh, get out of the climate crisis that we created for ourselves, uh, unless we're going we're gonna to basically uh, go down a path that we don't want to, where we will not be able to control climate and biodiversity loss is going to be uh, very important. And, and we all know, like, for example, if bees disappear, uh, that uh, it has a lot of impact for us. Um, so I think we're really at a, at a turning point here in, in society and, and in the history of, of mankind where we really should change our practices, design practices in order to be more sustainable mm-hmm. uh, because there's not much time left in order to, to reverse things. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, you spoke us through some of your work, uh, that indoor space, um, with that you've designed with Moss before, but are there other ways that you experiment with these different ideas and, and, um, different organic materials through your art practice? Yeah. So, um, I like to be experimental in what I do. So like, uh, before designing this, uh, this refrigerium, for example, uh, we build like this, like, a. uh, two meter high, one and a half meter diameter kind of pod that we exhibited in a gallery during Melbourne Design Week just a, a few weeks ago. When I say we, it's like myself and my and my team. There's like a, four amazing students from MIT that are working closely with me. Um, and yeah, we designed that, that, that little pod that... Um, that just basically gave us an understanding of how would people react to this space. And so on one end, it was really nice because we could see that uh, the people really feeling like uh, the coolness of the moss and the, and the freshness of being in that space. But also like it was really interesting to observe how playful they were with the environment. Mm-hmm. So like uh, for me, like art is almost like a, a research tool. It's like you design little experiences and you see how people react to it. And, uh, uh, and I really liked this kind of uh, approach in, in my practice. Mm. And how did it make you feel seeing how people reacted to the art that you produced? Oh, super interesting. Like it gives me confidence that uh, potentially they'll be nice to do this at a bigger scale. Uh, so now I'm looking for funders. <laughs> <laughs> Low key drop there. That's uh, it. <laughs> um, some of In some of my research, I also um, read a lot of the blogs that you've written and you made a point for genetics and biology basics being taught in design tools. Can you describe a little bit about why you think that is? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and, and I'm not saying like every designer should become a bio designer. Obviously, like all design practices are valid in their own rights. But for somebody which is interested in uh, in um, resolving the climate crisis or addressing the, the climate crisis, well, then biology and genetics is like a, a, a nice way, a nice segue into like more sustainable practices. And you can imagine that um, a lot of designers during like the, the tech boom started to learn how to code, right? Um, and for me, there's not much difference between digital 
coding and genetic coding. It's just a different source code. Mm. Um, so as designer learn to code digitally, I think potentially in the future, there's a lot of designers that will be interested in uh, understanding how to code with genetics. Mm, that's a really interesting idea, actually. And it, it's fascinating that you put it into those words because development or software development is such a natural and everyday thing that uh, a lot of people do now. And it's interesting to speculate on, you know, if people had the capacity to, you know, develop with genetics, like what might they do? And it'd be really interesting. Yeah, yeah. But before that, I think just biology basics is just like uh, goes beyond genetic, right? So before going into like manipulating species in order to do things differently, I think there's already like uh, many, many years of like amazing work ahead of us just by using the the, the species that we already have uh, mm. with us and around us. Yeah. yeah. Um, building on that uh, conversation as well, what are the implications of DNA coding that we might need to be aware of if it becomes a tool that more and more people start to use? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I think it just goes back to basic ethics until we we fully understand like uh, the future implications of like changing and 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 um, changing genomes. Uh, maybe we shouldn't do anything with it and not releasing <laughs> stuff in yeah. the wild. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And what's one thing that you think an everyday person should know about biodesign um, right now, today, and how it might impact them? I think it's like, it's going to become like a, a huge field. I think there was an, an article just like, I, I kind of remember on the top of my head there that the field is going to expand to like a trillion dollar industry in the next five to 10 years. Um, there's huge interest everywhere in every single practice in the in industry in using more sustainable material, obviously. Uh, and I reckon the, the field is just going to go crazy in the next few years. Mm. Is it um, from what you've read, most the most the interest is about the um, cost saving or sustainability benefits or is there some other considerations that are being made? Uh, I would say like with, like with everything, I think cost saving and sustainability are, are, are the mains, but also like in a more philosophical way, it kind of, it kind of help us reconsider our connection with nature. Mm. So when I talk about the refrigerium as well, I often talk about it as a neo-paganistic church of nature. And I think it's only by appreciating the living environments and the living uh, systems around us that uh, we'll be able to, to use them harmoniously. Uh, to, to, to help us live like more sustainable lives. Hmm. That's, in a, actually, that's a really interesting segue moment, um, talking about how the living systems impact our everyday. Um, and I'm hoping that you might be able to uh, walk us through a little bit about uh, how biodesign and bionic design are different. Okay, so biodesign and bionic design. So biodesign is designing with a living, and bionic design is how do we uh, merge um, uh, technology with the living? So like the classic example in science fiction is a cyborg culture. That's mm -hmm. bionic design. I remember that was just like really old show as well. Uh, uh, in France, it's called like L'homme qui va les similiar, but I think in English, it's uh, uh, the guy who's cost like 
three million dollars, and he was like this uh, Steve Austin. Oh, the I mil- remember. million dollar man. The million dollar man. There you yeah. go. Yeah. So he's a, he's a classic example of what bionic design is. Um, but today, like it's already being used a lot in um, in the health industry, for example. So people with disability or that are paralyzed, for example, the, some some researchers and, and designers are are working out ways, exoskeleton, for example, that are um, brain controlled, that help people uh, be more mobile and independent. So that's also is biodynamic design. And in the most simplest form as well, we could say that our smartphones is the start of a, a massive bionic, bionic design wave because when we think about it, like the, 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 the smartphones in our pockets are obviously not part of our, our bodies, but... Um, we already outsource a lot of our connective processes uh, to these machines. Mm. So nobody remembers uh, a phone number anymore. Uh, so we outsource this cognitive process to our smartphones. Mm. So is that the start of like a bio, bionic design wave? I don't know, but mm. I don't know. But it's an interesting comment. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting uh, thinking about how I use my smart, smartphone. I actually can't really read a map. I just rely on Google. So if like if Google Maps went down, I'd probably not be able to navigate through space at all in any way. Uh, yeah, I'm with you with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you talk us through like the basics of bionic design? Are there any like key kind of building blocks that go into it? Um, can you tell us a little bit more? Yeah, so I just would say that this, this, this is going outside of my practice, right? So biodesign yep. and, and speculative design is really what I do. Uh, bionic design is, I think, something which is going to get bigger and bigger. Um, and um, I don't know why. It's almost like a gut feel. Like when you see, for example, uh, obsession with transforming our bodies, even through tattoos and like... Um, um, all these kind of like new things that, that the world is adopting. What's the next step? Um, if we have the opportunity to uh, run super fast, where we take it? Um, mm. I don't know. Yeah. What do you think about it? Well, it's interesting. I think about um, competitive sport and things like doping and uh, performance enhancing drugs come to mind. And I've heard two different um, sides of the conversation. One is just let them do what they do and see what the hell they can do. And the other is, well, it's not really true human potential if it's artificially stimulated beyond what a normal person can do or what what a person can do. So I'm part of me is very curious about what is possible to uh, explore human performance and what our like extreme endpoint might be. But I also then worry about the costs of that at the same time, because all of, um, if you only focus on performance, um, you usually forget about something important as well. Yeah, 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 and then we see again the importance of a, a practice such as speculative design in order to understand the consequences of all these new technologies. Um, so it's all related, right? <laughs> mm. um, what do you think might emerge as a result of more and more people um, having access to bionic design? Like you mentioned, a smartphone is one example, and you know, for a lot of people, that's a productivity enhancer. For others, it's a an absolute time waster. Um, is there anything that you think we might see uh, for our futures as part of it? Oh, yeah, there's something that jumps to mind here. Um, so obviously everybody knows um, Elon Musk, right? Um, so supposedly he's working on a, on a new s- startup, which is called Neuralink, 
which is um, the um, insertion of a neural network technology within our cortex that enables us to to connect to the internet. And the wow. way he frames it is that um, this is potentially our only chance to uh, to survive artificial intelligence, to be on par with machines. Wow! So this is one feature which is being designed in front of us. Uh, and many, many, maybe some people might not be aware of it, but um, there's actually some people working on this already. Wow. Yeah. And this, uh, I've done a little bit of research into Neuralink. I don't, I'm no, by no means an expert, um, but from what I can tell, it's connected very closely to the concept of transhumanism um, and kind of fusing um, like almost like humans and technology together uh, in a, ho- yeah, like that's a, it. a deeper yeah. way. Uh, bionic design is definitely related to transhumanism. So um, transhumanism is a very interesting uh, field. It's not my specialty neither. Um, I'm just like interested in what it means for the future of mankind, which is basically what it means, right? Transhumanism uh, is like, uh, what's what's the next stage of human evolution potentially? Uh, human 2.0. And uh, when you look in the past, this is a term that was coined in, uh, in the 50s by a guy named uh, Jul- Julian... Um, um, Uxley, Julian Uxley, which is actually a brother of Aldous Uxley who wrote Brave New Worlds. Wow. So these two, these two brothers were, were very fascinated by the evolution of, a, of society and, and humankind. Um, but yeah, like at the moment, um, it's basically, it's a field of, uh, of research, I guess, that just investigating what is the future of mankind and, and are we going to follow a route where we manipulate our genome in order to become something else or are we going to potentially merge with machine in order to become cyborg or, or maybe none or maybe both? Mm. Who knows? Yeah. That's really interesting. It um, almost uh, is an extension of biohacking culture in a lot of ways, it seems. Uh, I know it's a very technological expression of that, but there are a growing number of people that are looking at you know, getting more from their bodies, getting more from their minds, trying to manipulate their own, you know, genetics to enhance themselves. And this sounds like it might be a natural extension of that in a lot of ways. Yeah, definitely. It's all related. It's like a lot of people want, you know, it's almost like a, what if you could sleep better? Will you be more performing? So mm. if I modify, uh, if we modify like a human species in order to sleep better, what is going to change? <laughs> it's yeah. like simple details like that, that could have like huge repercussion. And right now in terms of transhumanism, there's, there's probably not a, almost like a, a sociological acceptance of that. Um, I'm curious if you think society should allow for more transhumanism exploration um, in terms of what humans might be able to produce, achieve, um, and create. Well, with this conversation, we're really entering like uncharted territories, right? Because we don't know the consequences of of doing such things. Um, So if you think like, if you think about the benefit that it could provide in human health, curing diseases, um, um, alleviating like disabilities. Um, that seems like it could be a good idea. Uh, but obviously it might not be like, mm. there's always like ethical questions, which are potentially too hard to answer for like the, the, the time that we have here on, on this podcast is like a, such a huge <laughs> field, right? <laughs> and, um, 
yeah, it's, I don't have the answers to that. I think like society doesn't have the answers to that. Um, we just need to see how it unfolds and, and maybe we shouldn't touch it until we're ready, such mm. as um, genetic manipulation and biodesign. Mm. I think it's something worth exploring, but we definitely have to have um, a question in the back of our minds about how it might affect um, our bodies, our thoughts, our behaviors, and how that might change over the next 10 to 15 to 20 years as well. Yeah. And why do we do, why do we want this to start with? What's the purpose behind it? Mm. Like, yeah, we need to, all these questions needs to be asked for sure. Mm. I think it's a really good starting point to start with that why question though, as well as like, why do you, why do we think we actually need these things? Like, um, there's probably a deeper kind of question there that people that are exploring these um, ideas are already um, connected to. But yeah, I think you're right in that perhaps asking first that what if question um, and then exploring um, that preferred future is perhaps step one before we just, you know, decide that we should do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know like from a fact from research that I've made just like just being interested in the field that there's actually a lot of money being invested at the moment in um, curing aging for example yeah uh, seeing aging as a disease and uh, and trying to stop that by uh, genetic manipulations or or just like a drug enhancement um, it's like fascinating territories like we're, we're entering in the next few years mm. as science developed and our knowledge is expanding and there's all these new opportunities that are coming up on a daily basis and, and we're going back to the start of this conversation uh, uh, just like half an hour ago right so like uh, what does that mean for for men, humankind and society mm. Where are we heading? Yeah, it's it's possibly a scary and un, it's like you said just before a very much uncharted territory. Yes, yeah. Mm. yeah. Something else I wanted to um, discuss with you a little bit about is CRISPR. Um, obviously, you've got your background in biodesign and genetics, and I'm hoping you can like tell people a little bit more about it and what what CRISPR really is. Okay, so this is going to get maybe a bit technical, but that's okay. <laughs> so CRISPR is a genetic tool that basically um, helps anybody that has a knowledge to use it um, um, to manipulate genome and um, and do what what's called potentially uh, microsurgery of genomes in order to to change um, the the traits of an organism. Um, so it's very very fascinating tools because. Uh, since the discovery of DNA in the in the 50s, I think people have been thinking about it. How can we manipulate uh, genomes so then we so that we can make um, organisms do things differently? Um, and for humankind, um, how can we cure diseases? But uh, literally, um, and so for a long, long time, like there was no solution to this, or or the solutions were really messy. Uh, they were like creating more problems than than solving the original question or the original intent. And in 2012, um, this uh, group of researchers from California uh, uh, identified this tool, which has been around us all along. I think uh, at the start is a. Uh, it's a, it's basically a, an immune system from uh, from bacteria, and we finally finally understood um, its purpose and how it works, and discovered possibility to use it in biotechnology in wow. order to manipulate genomes around us. Uh, it's a fascinating, fascinating field of research. Uh, 
we're just at the the start of his journey. I think like uh, the original CRISPR-Cas9 technology is already outdated and there's paper every year coming up with uh, better and smarter and cleaner solutions. And we'll reach a point where uh, we'll pretty much be able to um, to manipulate genomes in a very safe way. But once again, the real question is like, why do we want to do this? Mm. And what are the consequences of that? Yeah, what is the impact of these actions yeah. that we may take? Yeah, 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 mm. yeah, yeah. Can you tell the, us- the, the potential is huge. It's crazy. Yeah. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about that potential then um, and what that looks like? Um, yeah, so like in, in, for human health, for, for example, is you could cure the disease, like you get rid of cancer, you can like uh, cure HIV. Um, actually, like a, I think there's a research group that already managed to make cells, not the whole organism, but human cells resistant to HIV uh, wow. um, by transforming like the, the receptor of the virus from what I remember, but don't quote me on this. Um, yeah, we, we won't hold you to the <laughs> specifics of the research. Yeah, please, please don't. Um, so yeah, there's any, any question that you can ask uh, potentially as a solution through CRISPR. Uh, when it when when it comes to dealing with like um, living organism and and creating materials and all of that, mm. and is there a way to describe how it works um, in as simple a way as possible? Oh, okay, so that's super technical. Um, I think uh, really briefly, it's basically um, a protein um, which is called Cas9 which recognizes um, a little fragment of nucleic acid. I'm getting really technical on you here. <laughs> and when it recognizes this, uh, this specific um, um, nucleic acid element, which is DNA or RNA, it just cuts it. Mm. Um, and so it creates like a break into a genome, which then can be used to, uh, to change uh, uh, the genetic makeup of this living organism at this point of rupture, of breaking. So it's uh, basically a mechanism that cuts really precisely at a specific space uh, the genome so that um, the genetic engineer can uh, change uh, the DNA at this specific point that just broke. Mm. It's uh, sounding to me like microsurgery at a very, very, very small scale. That's microsurgery at the atomic level. That's exactly wow. that. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, and the funny thing is like lower organism, which uh, we talked about earlier, like have huge potential. They actually do it quite naturally that they develop this, uh, this mechanism uh, called uh, homologous recombination and have all the genetic um, tools within their own um, um, cells in order to make this happen. But somehow for higher organisms, uh, mammals, uh, higher plants, uh, they don't do that really efficiently. So we lose, we lost this uh, ability to, uh, to repair and, and modify our genomes accordingly to uh, to what we need mm. and uh, we're going to learn from like the lower organism again crispr cas9 yeah. is actually coming from bacteria those simple uh, organisms come through again as uh, the big difference makers in a lot of ways yeah 100% and and where is it in development right now you you mentioned that it's pretty early um, we're only kind of just starting to scratch the surface so uh, applications like human applications are, are, are obviously at the very early stages. There's a, a Chinese scientist that I've been playing with it um, a couple of years ago. Um, um, 
now he's in prison <laughs> because okay. didn't consider, <laughs> now didn't, didn't, didn't fully consider the implication of his research. Um, but in, for, as a research tool in labs, it's used all over the world. Like mm. uh, a lot of my friends in, in labs in science are actually using CRISPR for their, for their research nowadays. It's a really common tool, which is uh, cheap and, and quite efficient. Actually, I believe there's even a Netflix um, documentary series that explores um, genetic modification that, excuse me, has recently appeared and come out. I can't yeah. recall what the name is, but uh, I do remember seeing that come up in my recommendations list. Yeah, yeah. And there's also like a very good documentary that just got released last year. It's called Human Nature. And the director is Adam Bolt. And I highly recommend uh, this uh, documentary if you want to know more about this. Mm, I'll link that into the show notes for sure. So uh, we've spoken about a lot, Ollie. And I know we got super technical just now with CRISPR and it's probably like blown some people's minds. It's gone a bit too deep in the weeds. Um I'm kind of curious that in the era of COVID-19, what are some of the questions that we should be asking ourselves right now? In terms of like bio-design or speculative design or? Probably more speculative um, because I think that uh, we're in this inflection or reflection point at the moment. Um, you know, the lives that we have previously had have maybe had a had a bit of a we, we've hit pause uh and i'm curious if there's some questions that we should be taking a moment to think about right now uh, yeah oh such a good question as well yeah as you said like we're on pause and i think every time we're on pause it is a unique opportunity to to really uh look around and 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 observe how we live and and the consequences of that and um and I think it's fascinating to see people already talking about the post-COVID-19 world and what it could look like. Are we just going to go back to uh, what it used to be just a few weeks ago? Or do we have an opportunity to change things and make things different and, uh, and uh, be more sustainable with uh, our practice of life practice, for example? Uh, I I read already that some governments uh, in Europe specifically um, are taking very bold steps in order to change society. So we saw Spain, the government of Spain, proposing the implementation of a, a universal basic income. And I think it's just fantastic that um, in just a matter of a few weeks, uh, we, came, we, we, we changed our minds from like, oh yeah, this is just like not, not feasible and it doesn't fit within the way we live to like, ah, actually maybe we need this and it's going to be great for a post COVID-19 world. Um, so like, it's just so fascinating to see what's happening at the moment. I heard, I read as well that the, the, the city government of Amsterdam in the, in the Netherlands, um, is starting to, to change the way they're going to manage the city. So there is this amazing scholar and economy in the UK, um, called Kate Rollworth and she's, uh, she, wrote, she wrote like a whole, she developed a whole new economical model called the, the donut economy, which is basically uh, an application of the triple bottom line to economy, uh, economy, uh, vi financial viability, but also uh, a consideration for the environment and society. And, and the city of Amsterdam is actually going to switch their whole model um, to this um, donut economy and to try to make things more uh, sustainable and, and better for all their, their residents. So like, 
yeah, times like this are just like uh, fantastic because I think in times of crisis, we're, we're more receptive to change. Um, we, we see the need for change and, and we can seize it. And I really hope that it's going to happen as well in Australia and all across the world. Mm. Yeah, I think you're right. And it's possibly only when we have these moments to pause and reflect that these ideas start coming up and we can start having conversations about possibilities for the future and what it might look like because what I've noticed like in myself and uh, and a lot of people that I know um, we're all in a rush to get from A to B to get from home to work from work to gym from gym to home from home mm. to sleep like there's never a moment to sit back and go you know is this really the thing that you know, I want, um, because we're constantly rushing through things. So I, I think you're very, very right. And it's really exciting to hear about future possibilities like this donut economy that is going to potentially massively impact Amsterdam. And, you know, I'm really excited to learn more about that and what they might become because of it. Mm, yeah, I, I, it's really nice. Like uh, you're talking about slowing down. I think like we already saw and heard of the the, the slow cooking movement, the slow food movement, uh, uh, and obviously like things like fast fashion on the other end needs to slow down as well. What what does slow fashion look like? Mm. What, what what does a slow architecture look like? Um, uh, it's really an interesting time to 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 think about what that means and and the benefit that it could bring to to our society. Yeah. And uh, given that, what's your message for everyone right now? Oh, I think like take care of yourselves, <laughs> take care of your loved ones. Um, I, as I said, like yeah, it's really it's really nice to uh, to take a breather from like the the fast paced living we are we we are all in, and uh, and I really hope that we're gonna uh, take this time to reconsider our ways of living. Mm, me too. Um, just finally to wrap up, where can people learn more about you and your work? Okay, cool. Um, so I'm, I'm on Twitter, although I tweet maybe like once every six months. Uh, <laughs> I can send you all the links if you want. Um, I have a blog on Medium, uh, which I semi-regularly update, maybe like, let's say, three to five articles a year. <laughs> um, I have a website, futureensemble.co, um, which is at the moment mainly my portfolio. I clearly need to update it. I think I haven't updated that in like a year and a half, but it's my intent during this time of of pause to actually take the time and and write an, a few more pieces of content. Excellent. Um, what else is there? Um, oh yeah, so I run this group called Melbourne uh, Speculative Futures uh, with a friend of mine. So we we opened uh, this group about a year and a half ago, and it's actually the the Melbourne chapter of an international. Um, a consortium of uh, speculative designers, which is called the Design Future Initiatives. So we organize a few events every every year, and and uh, and, uh, and I hope you can uh, maybe join us at the next one when when the time is right and we are allowed to get back to society. Um, and also, like I actually teach at university, so like there's a the Master of Design Innovation and Technology, uh, where I, I, I teach all these new practices of uh, speculative design and, and and critical design and and biodesign. And um, if you feel this is a time to go back to university, well, we're more than happy to have you uh, uh, with us and come with us to uh, to talk about all of this and see uh, how we can benefit the world. That'd be great. Um, 
Well, Ollie, it's been an absolute massive conversation. I've loved learning all about your practice inside of speculative design, going deep inside of biodesign and touching the surface of bionic design and transhumanism. These are topics that I've been, you know, at the fringe of and not really explored myself. And I just wanted to say thank you for, you know, sharing your time and your enthusiasm for design and energy (laughs) with me. It's been such a lush and really enjoyable conversation. So thank you so much. Oh no! Thank you. Thanks to you, like to organize this like fantastic like podcast because like there's not a lot of a uh, of platform at the moment that uh, uh, where we can spread the, the the message about this new practice of design and the evolution of design. And I think you're doing a fantastic work. So thanks for that. Looking forward to to actually get down and and, and listen to all the other episodes of uh, of the goods. Oh, thank you, man. I'd really appreciate that. Well. Um, again, Ollie, thank you so much. I think we'll wrap the show with that. Great. Thanks for having me again. Hey there, it's Mike again. I wanted to say thank you for your time, attention, and listening this far. So what did you think? If you like this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to The Goods on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or get The Goods on your favorite podcast network or listening apps. This podcast only exists with the support of people like you. If you got valuable advice, a great insight, or see potential in the show, I'd really appreciate it if you'd consider leaving a rating and review. Thank you, and practice good design. Good design.